It's Thursday, January 6th, and we have made it to the first episode of the year 2021. As always, we at Combing the Stacks will cover three albums from the top 100 album chart at besteveralbums.com. Each segment will cover a background of the musician, some context for the album, and our personal reviews. Your hosts for the podcast are John, Josh, and Matt, grateful for both the new mugs and t-shirts from our loyal listeners. Our first segment will discuss the debut album from rock royalty Led Zeppelin, known by fans and critics as Led Zeppelin 1. There wasn't much that sounded like Led Zeppelin in 1968, and the crew will discuss what came in the immediate and long-term aftermath of this key album. The second segment sees us covering the classic Beatles album Rubber Soul from 1965. The album represents a large step forward both musically and lyrically, while still focusing primarily on love songs and harmonization. Matt will home the segment. We finish the show with a segment covering jazz musician Charles Mingus's magnum opus, Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, from 1963. The album is designed as a six-part ballet that tells the story of his life and pain, and is considered one of jazz's greatest works. 2021 sees us rushing to the end of the 1960s, but not before we cover some of its most seminal works in music. We invite you to continue climbing with us to the top of the stacks. editor josh here just wanted to let you know that we detected a slight audio issue with this week's recording you might hear a faint echo unfortunately we were unable to fix it in post-production but we are aware of it and we've taken steps to fix it going forward it shouldn't detract too much from listening to the episode hopefully but we wanted to let you know ahead of time 
Hello there, it's January 6th, 2021. Sounds nice to say that. Uh, this is the first episode of Combing the Stacks of the new year. And I just realized that I gave the date that we are recording this. So you are most likely listening to this on or after January 7th. So we are thrust into the first month of the new year. And I want to check in with both of my co-hosts to see how they're doing. Uh, Cause there's a, I'm sure a lot that happened from the last time that we uh, taped shortly before the new year, uh, the new year's bell uh, rose and dropped respectively. Matt, how are you? This country is going straight to hell. <laughs> Chaos reigns. But I am fine because I have combing the stacks to keep me sane and, di- and di- diverted. And my you are not diverted. even. And you're not even 15 minutes away from the nation's capital hearing blaring sirens all day as they call like your whole yeah. county's police force into D.C. So, so you me? get to just view it from afar. Yeah, <laughs> I'm oh, digging yeah. ditches out front for the inevitable invasion. I feel of bad for yeah. Josh is gonna die. This might be Josh's. <laughs> well, last I'm closer episode. than he is. <laughs> oh, you, you are? remember? Okay. Oh yeah, man. It's too. It's too. Uh, like from 2:30 today until about 4:30, like it was a steady stream of cop cars with sirens on, just going right from you know all parts of Montgomery County into D.C. And for those that are not familiar with uh, the area that Josh and I are in, he is in the Virginia area close to D.C., and I'm in the Maryland area close to D.C. Well, and you're both going to die. Matt is in Puritan country, so he's safely <laughs> yeah. aware. I'm churning butter. It, yeah. <laughs> churning butter, yes. In, in Plymouth, right? <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. Building his, uh, uh, his basement bunker. There you go. Well, speaking of basement bunkers, Josh, how have you been recently? Merry New Year, everyone. Merry New Year. It as, doesn't as it, happy. It's fu- Happy New Year. <laughs> no, nah, you haven't seen Trading Places, obviously, because I did. That's that, that. That line that was, was from quote. Trading Places, John. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fun doesn't stop. So another exciting combing the stacks episode. I'm ready to talk more music. Yep. Can't stop, won't stop. To quote Sean Puffy Combs, yep. who I do not believe we will be uh, covering in the. Six, oh, well, in the Sadly. 90s, I guess, I guess he's Notorious some, B.I.G. Yeah, he's yeah. Yeah. in there, and he does do some, like, uh-huh, production. yeah, in the background yeah. of stuff in production, <laughs> so. I'm sure we're doing a Mace album or two as well, so no. he's probably, <laughs> no? <laughs> no? No Mace? He uh, produced that Mary J. Blige album, and I'm going to guess it's not in the 90s countdown, but I'm also certain it's in the updated Rolling Stone countdown, so it may be, uh, you know, a bonus episode at some point. We so. can do a Mace episode for you, Matt. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Stealing hits from so the good. 80s. Yeah. Feels so good. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, all right. Oh. That's enough of my That's enough of my <laughs> bad boy uh, late 90s rapping right there. Uh, we have a very interesting uh, episode uh, this show. Um, we do not have any cleaning of the stacks. We actually talked about that ahead of time. So we're going to be able to plow straight ahead into the albums. And to give you an idea of what we're going to be covering, um, if you're searching for something in particular, Josh will be starting us off with Led Zeppelin 1 by Led Zeppelin. I guess it's not technically Led Zeppelin 1. It's just all Mm -hmm. of them were Led Zeppelin and they just made them in order, right? Um, Matt will be doing The Beatles again with Rubber Soul this time. And I'll be doing our last jazz album of the 60s, Charles Mingus, The Black Saint, and The Sinner Lady. So without further ado, Josh, the floor is yours. All right, in the opening montage, you heard communication breakdown, and now you're going to hear a little snippet of Dazed and Confused. Been dazed and confused for so long, it's not true. Wanted a woman, never bargained for you. Lots of people talking, few of them know. Soul of a woman was 
All right, we're back. Led Zeppelin and Led Zeppelin 1 came out in the U.S. in January 12, 1969. It is currently 14 on Best Ever Albums, albums of the 60s, and 58th overall behind Nirvana's In Utero. So I don't know which album's better, but there you go. for placement. Nirvana's In Utero because it's ahead, one <laughs> ahead one of this. Ahead. Yep. Come on. It's mad, Josh. Josh. <laughs> Uh, Led Zeppelin, as I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this band, but I'm still going to give a bio. They, they formed in London in 1968, and they consist of Robert Plant on vocals, Jimmy Page on guitar, John Paul Jones, not his real name, on bass keyboards, and John Bonham on drums. The band was formed out of the dissolution of the Yardbirds, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. J- Jimmy Page was a member of the Yardbirds, and they had played their final gig in July of 1968 in the UK. However, they still had some Scandinavian dates that had to be played to fulfill obligations or contracts or something. So Paige and the bassist of the Yardbirds, Chris Drea, got permission from the other band members to form a new band and use the name of the Yardbirds to fulfill the remaining dates. Paige had wanted Terry Reed um, initially, or as his first choice, um, who was a musician who opened for, he seemed like he was around the scene at the time. He opened for the Rolling Stones and Cream, among other bands, um, but he declined um, for vocal. He wanted him as the vocalist. Um, Reed then suggested Robert Plant, who eventually accepted. Um, and then, in turn, Plant suggested his former drummer, John Bonham, and the band that they were in called Band of Joy that was not successful. And then John Paul Jones asked about the bassist position after Dreja, or Dreja, spelled D-R-E-J-A, um, dropped out to become a photographer. Pa- and then Paige knew of Jones as well from their session musician days. So two of them were had already been session musicians for a long time now, and, and that, I think that comes into play um, when you hear the album. They played, so with the four of them, uh, you know, in place they played their first time together in august of 1968 in in some uh, basement beneath a a pub or hall or something like that um they completed their scandinavian dates um with the name as the new yardbirds um, and then they started recording their first album and completed it relatively quickly in about nine days but then they received a cease and desist letter saying that they had to change their name since um, Paige was the only one allowed to use the, the Yardbirds name for the Scandinavian dates. Um, sounds reasonable to me, especially since the new Yardbirds is a dumb band name. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so how did Led Zeppelin get their name? Do you guys, do you guys know this story? I'm curious hmm. before I tell it. I just think I it sounds I, cool. No, yeah, I feel like I know it. Um, when you tell it, I'll tell you if it's the yeah. story that I am aware of. I'm sure, I'm sure it's what you're thinking of, but accounts differ. But back in 1966, Keith Moon and John Entwistle of The Who recorded an instrumental with Paige, John Paul Jones, and Jeff Beck. Yep, called this Beck's, is the story I know. Yep, yep called Beck's Bolero. Um, so they had discussed the idea of forming a supergroup, but that didn't, that didn't pan out. That would have been a pretty good supergroup, I think. Yeah. Um, Moon, Moon or... Or Entwistle allegedly said the band would go over like a lead balloon, jokingly. And then somebody made the joke, um, like, no, more like a Led Zeppelin. 
And then um, Paige remembered that joke two years later and used that for the band name. Um, then their manager, Peter Grant, suggested they drop the A in lead so people wouldn't pronounce it lead Zeppelin. Um, mm. And then the balloon was replaced by Zeppelin, um, which is part, in part why the Hindenburg is on the cover of their first album. So P, uh, a little side note about Peter Grant. He was their manager um, the, uh, at the tail end of the Yardbirds right before they broke up. And then from Led Zeppelin's beginning all the way until their breakup in 1980. He was considered one of the shrewdest and most ruthless managers in history in terms of protecting the artists and, and getting them fair compensation and, and, you know, good sweet contracts and things like that. Um, he, he obtained unprecedented contracts for Led Zeppelin for about, uh, about a million dollar advance from Atlantic Records in 19, November of 1968, which was the biggest deal ever for a new band at the time, uh, especially considering Atlantic had never even heard them and signed them without hearing them. Um, and under the contract, um, this is a quote, uh, the band had autonomy in dealing, deciding when they would release the albums and tour, and they had final say over the contents and design of each album, and they would also decide how to promote each release and which tracks to release as singles. Um, and then they formed their own company, Super Hype, to handle all the publishing rights. So that was all in part of the contract, and I mean, that's that gives you a lot of control as the band as to how to proceed with things, especially considering, you know, all the other bands that we've talked about. Um, they probably wish they had some of those. Yeah, everybody uh, else is getting screwed over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think CCR in particular would have liked that <laughs> yeah, contract. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Um, so Led Zeppelin started touring the UK as the New Yardbirds on October 4th, 1968. And then they became Led Zeppelin October 25th of that year. They toured North America December 26th, 1968 to February 16th, 1969. And during this tour... Um, this first album was released um, while they were touring. Um, they started out as an opening act for other bands during that North American tour for Atlant um, for other bands on Atlantic Records label, but eventually they were so good they became the headliner, and some of the bands stopped showing up for the. Can you? The I was gates. gonna say, can you imagine like 1968 Led Zeppelin opening up for you? That would yeah. be something else. Yeah, they were. I put that on my gravestone. Like, you know, Led Zeppelin opened for me. Yeah. I, so you're thinking of it as like you, but I'm thinking of it as like bands that have some things and then they listen to that. You know, you hear mm -hmm. stories about stuff like that periodically, like, you know, Rush opening for people or Van Halen, you know what I mean? And people just being like, what the hell, you know? <laughs> so, and I, I imagine it would be very similar. Right, right. Um, and then their debut album came out January 12th, 1969 when they were touring in America, as I said, and March 31st in the UK. Um, Atlantic Records had distributed copies of the album to radio stations ahead of time, leading up to the release to build hype for that. Um, it was The album itself was recorded on September 25th, 1968, at Olympic Studios in London. Uh, and Jimmy Page says it took about 36 hours um, over the course of a few weeks to play and mix and um, arrange everything um, it was completed quickly because they knew the material ahead of time um, because it was material that they had played during their Scandinavian tour dates um, and they had some past rehearsals as well and also the fact that Paige and the manager Peter Grant paid for the pr production time themselves out of pocket because they hadn't re secured a recording contract yet um, the total cost of the 
recording was 1,782 pounds at the time, which in today's money, I did the con uh, inflation calculations and conversions is $42,300 in today's money. And Page claims he knows the exact amount because he remembers signing the bill for, for the total um, cost of covering. For it doesn't production. sound like a whole lot. I guess not. I mean, not now. <laughs> not, I mean, not but for even back then, their you success. Know, like, yeah. It seems like it's, yeah, it seems like it would have been. Yeah. Anyway. Um, the, it was, the album was produced by Jimmy Page and engineered by his friend, Glenn's Johns. Um, and the album cover would, was designed by George Hardy. Just out of curiosity as a trivia, do you know what other band that we've talked about that George Hardy has designed covers oh. for? Any guesses? No. <laughs> yeah, no. he just he did the um, Dark Side of the Moon cover and Wish You Were Here for Pink Floyd as wow. well. Um, they only released one single off this album, Good Times, Bad Times. And this was one of the first albums to be released in stereo only up to this point. It was, as we know, mono and stereo, separate releases. And this an al album initially received poor reviews, infamously by Rolling Stone, um, which I could not find an actual copy of the review for that. Oh, oh that's why you wanted my pass. That's why you wanted my password. Oh, one one of the many reasons I wanted. I wanted yeah, stuff I can't, on. <laughs> I can't. I can't figure it out. I don't even. I think I might have to. I have a paper copy subscription, but I think I might have to pay extra for the digital copy too um, oh, okay uh, you, yeah. uh, you you reached out to the wrong person because there's actually a website called bad rolling stone reviews oh. that, um, <laughs> that's like just a running list of terrible rolling stone reviews oh that's um, good to know. that i will put up on our twitter account later this week and yes led zeppelin one led zeppelin two and led zeppelin three were all absolutely despised by a rolling stone yeah that's a that's a clip Viscera viscerally by the uh writers mm -hmm. cleaning the stacks josh there you go yeah they've since backtracked on that um i think they're pretty high on their their 500 list but well i should hope so <laughs> however despite all those reviews uh it was commercially successful it reached number 10 on the billboard charts and six in the uk and number one in spain and that's the history of the group up to this point I'm not doing anything after because we're going to be covering pretty much all their albums or at least their first four. And I've heard this album, you know, probably dozens of times. But Matt, what did you think about Led Zeppelin one? thought it kicked ass. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah. I don't I don't know. So Zeppelin for me has always been it's another one of these bands that's been more of a um, like I never really owned. The only album I ever owned was Led Zeppelin four, Led Zeppelin four. Which is mm -hmm. probably the most popular one. I would, I would. It is. Just, it's yeah. got stairway on it, like you know. Yeah. Um, so the majority of the songs that I heard were always in some sort of compilation, greatest hits mix. Um, you know, I think I burned several years, you know, twenty years ago, burned like a cop copies of these, uh, you know, releases that were just basically all the songs just put in different orders and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I was familiar with a lot of these songs, but not with the album. So you know, I think that aside from like whatever was on Led Zeppelin 4. I know Cashmere's on Physical Graffiti, but I couldn't tell you what songs were on what albums. So mm, it was kind okay. of a nice surprise to, to hear, you know, nice. what was on here. 
Um, starts off great, good times, bad time. What a great, what a great way to enter not just an album but your career, right? Like yeah. just that, <laughs> da, da, you know. And it's uh, just a classic, I- uh, iconic opening. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Um, you know, the, the, but that's a great single. The other songs that I was really familiar with, like Dazed and Confused, um, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, Communication Breakdown. I've always liked those songs. I like the bluesier songs. So they have, mm-hmm. I think it's almost like, are they have covers on here? Like the bluesy. They do. There's like two real blues songs and it sounds, it, it seems like those might've been more covers. Um, and then you've got the instrumental kind of like, they're not quite totally in the J.R.R. Tolkien realm just yet, no. or at least as much as they go just into t- later on. Just a tinge of folk, A little, I think. little hint of yeah. that, you know, a little of the bongos, you know, and that's, what is it, Black Mountainside gives you a little bit of a, you know, kind of that instrumental kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think my favorite surprise song that I w- really wasn't that familiar with was the last track, How Many More Times. I really oh, like yeah. that, 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 that riff. It's got a very good, good great groove that that gets into. Um, and uh, I just, I really like this. This is just a solid, well-produced, they sound great, rock, pure rock and roll album. It makes me go, why don't I like Zeppelin more than I do? Um, <laughs> yeah. Or why why did I never really get into them? Um, and and I, I've, they've always, Zeppelin for me has always kind of been on the periphery. Uh, and I've, it's never been something I've disliked or I've heard like, ah, oh, this isn't good. You know, it's always been like, yeah, it's pretty good, but mm-hmm. I never, um, you know, really delved into it. Um, aside from, like I said, from Led Zeppelin four, but I, I really like this. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a good length. It's got a good amount of variety on here. Uh, it, it's certainly different, I think, and, and much more polished as, as far as hard rock goes than maybe some of the other stuff that was coming out at this time, or at least the stuff that, that I'm aware of. But, um, mm-hmm. I, I really like it. Gotta love Robert Plant's voice. You know, pages, you know, the musicianship is phenomenal. I mean, I don't know if it gets much better the, 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 than what all four of these guys are doing. They are certainly at the top of their game, yeah. um, you know, amongst, I mean, there, there's a reason why, you know, everybody's still wearing t-shirts of Zeppelin and, and you know, they got a, like I said, they got a great name, you know, it's a great yeah. rock and roll name. They, they, they have it. They got it all, um, and this is a great opening record. Um, I am going to be interested to hear the other ones um, that we're going to be covering and kind of compare them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely some different things that, you know, I think Led Zeppelin Four. I don't want to talk too much about that, but I definitely hear some different things, so you can definitely see the sound evolving as the years go on. But um, but for doing this in what, would you say, 68 was this album? 68 or 69? Yeah, they made it in September 68. 68, yeah. yeah. So, I mean... I, I, I I like it. Um, I I love it really, actually, and um, I I should listen to more Zeppelin. I think um, so. Uh, no complaints for me on this one. Nice, John. What about you? I know some of your thoughts on Zeppelin, but what did you think so, of this first album? It was fascinating because you know I always come at Zeppelin when I listen, and I'm I'm considerably more familiar with Led Zeppelin stuff. It sounds like than Matt was. I'm mm-hmm. familiar with the albums. I've listened to them many times. I've listened to them in order. Um, I've always been in the camp that. Led Zeppelin is a solid band, but I've never thought of them as like the greatest hard rock band or one of the greatest hard rock bands like a lot of other folks do. Mm. Um, That's not to say that I don't like their stuff. It's just sort of a little bit of their reputation overstrips maybe what I heard. But boy, this is why this um, podcast is fun to do, because when I normally listen to Led Zeppelin, I hear them as the uh, forerunner for lots of music that came after them you know like big guitar riffs blues driven stuff you know there were tons of those bands in the 70s and and you certainly you know some of the elements of how led zeppelin played their instruments and their stagecraft and the rock and roll lifestyle bled over to everything in the 80s from 
you know, the bands that were still touring from the 70s, like, you know, Aerosmith and um, Van Halen and stuff like that, but also hair metal and Guns N' Roses and all kinds of different stuff. Um, It's also a sound that bands don't really sound like this anymore, which is fascinating because for like 25 years, there were nothing but bands and not just male bands by the way there's there were bands like heart and stuff right that were trying to sound like this that were Mm -hmm. you know female fronted um so you know i always thought of it that way like this you know they portended it but now hearing it in the context of the 60s it's hilarious because like there's nothing that sounds like (laughs) what's up in the 60s so when you're listening to it you know it was an interesting take because there's all of these songs i'm familiar with and i've heard this album many times but it felt like a like a space alien take on rock because yeah. there's just nothing that sounded like this all the way from, you know, the opening, you know, the opening riff track one, five seconds in good times, bad times doesn't sound like anything else we've listened to in the sixties, uh, nor does communication breakdown and, and really, you know, dazed and confused too, doesn't. And, you know, and those are probably the most well-known songs on this mm-hmm. as singles or, you know, classic rock staples. Um, there's other songs that are equally as much, um, different than what we've listened to, but that was really my takeaway. Like here, you have the prototypical touring rock band lifestyle band, but sounding as novel in their original times as they probably did in 1968. And because of that, this album it was already going to get a good rating from me, but it probably bumped up a few more points because I was able to kind of experience Led Zeppelin in a way that it must have been like when you listened to them in 1968 early 1969 and it must have been it must have been similar to what like when we listened to the stooges it was like where we you know i think i said it sounds seemed like they came in a a time capsule from 10 years later but zeppelin doesn't feel that much later but it very much feels of a different time in the same way the stooges did but also in a way that you immediately get why they became commercially successful i mean it just you you hear the big guitar parts, you know, the mm-hmm. big vocals, the big drums of, of uh, John Bonham, you know, uh, bass lines that you're in the background but are thudding bass lines. And, you know, just and the songs are the songs are long, but mm-hmm. I, I think and it will be interesting to talk about other Zeppelin albums because I think mm-hmm. they refine their craft a little bit. Uh, longer, a lot, a lot of the six minute songs like you shook me and dazed and confused and how many more times I would still argue that at this stage, Zeppelin could have shaved two or three minutes off some of those songs and they would have been stronger songs. But, um, but that first four or five minutes is worth it. So strong thumbs up for me, but that's my initial take, just big everything like you'd expect Zeppelin to sound like, but also just very different than anything else released in the sixties, even the late sixties. Yeah, I agree completely. I I really liked hearing this album in the context of the 60s. I mean, what this band is so hard compared to they rock so much harder than a lot of the things we've heard at this point, Uh, you know, with the exception of maybe like Hendrix or or the Stooges, like you said, they are just kind of on another level. And and they the, the other shocking thing to me was how like fully formed right out of the gate they sound. There's no, there's none of this like Agreed. trying to figure out your sound or, um, you know, doing a lot of covers. I mean, they do have covers on here, but they, they make them their own for sure. I mean, I haven't heard these songs outside of, uh, of them. So they're, you know, original enough that 
They're I think almost it's like originals. A little bit like the uh, the band, though, in that these people were like gigging, traveling musicians for mm-hmm. a long time, and so yes. they had a level of professionalism that when you threw them in a band, um, yep. Yep. they they had already lived a couple lifestyles as musicians, and it just kind of, it, and they played with other people, so I think it just it yes. naturally congealed a little quicker. Yeah, two of them were session musicians for a few years are uh, already, but it it's also. Page was the oldest, I believe. I'm I'm kind of reading a book right now about about them to get some more info, background info. But um, I mean, Ro- Robert Plant was only 20 years old when this album came out, which is just incredible, crazy. Um, I really like the common their their blues interpretation. I'm always going to be a sucker for all the blues rock that we listen to, um, but they sound different than like the Rolling Stones, who kind of do blues in a different way than they do. Um, it's just a bit a bit harder, I guess, or or they're more willing to, I don't know, they, they play off each other so well, especially Paige on the guitar and Robert Plant on the vocals. There's a lot of back and forth um, in some of the songs, like You Shook Me, and and then the uh, he, Paige has got some great solos on here as well. Um, I also, also really, yeah, go ahead. They also veer away from that mythological lyric lyrical content, which mm-hmm. in later Zeppelin albums can be a little bit ponderous at times (laughs) yeah Um, this is still them sort of writing about bass instincts here Mm -hmm. yeah the lyrics are simple but they're effective um i i I gravitate towards the music on this on this album i also like robert plant's vocals like matt said i just love how high he can get and his voice is so strong and he i feel like he brings this is like a new level he brings so much like sex to rock and roll um and in the way that like Morrison level levels of sex, Jim Morrison levels um, to rock and different though. Cause it's not a, it's not like sultry, like uh, Morrison. It's like, it comes right from the scrotum, Josh. Yeah. I would describe (laughs) his voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely thrusting in (laughs) to the forefront. John, who would you rather bone Robert Plant or Jim Morrison? (laughs) Well, it's just, you know, why have to pick one? You know what I mean? It's the sixties. Um, and the high production quality, I think I didn't recognize how good of a producer Jimmy Page was on this album before listening to it for the the um, the review. So, yeah, I'm really I've heard, I mean, I went through a Led Zeppelin phase in college where I was listening to them all the time and had most of their albums, I think. But it's nice coming to this from a different perspective and and with all of the context around it and all the other music that we've heard. So yeah, big thumbs up for me also. Yeah. I think there's a, um, there's a confidence and there's a maturity with this record, Mm -hmm. particularly knowing that it's a first, that it's a debut album. Um, and that, and it's just, it comes right out. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, I think Josh, you put it a good way that they didn't really need to find themselves. They knew exactly what they were, what they were doing. And I think John, you make a good point too about, about listening to this um, in the context of what we're doing with the podcast of all the other stuff that we've listened to. And I think that there might be some benefit there that it's taken this long to get to a Zeppelin album that we've done. just done so many other different yeah. types of things. And then this just kind of kicks in and you're like, Whoa, you know, it's like, it, it's, it, it definitely stands out in that regard as well. Um, yeah. And I think that there's, there's like proggy stuff in here. Like I really, babe, I'm going <laughs> to lose you is I love that song. That might, that might be one of my favorite ones on this with the, uh, you know, kind of like the acoustic and then they, they kick into the rocking mm-hmm. part later on and they do different things. And I know, you know, John, you're might you're not as a fan of, of the longer songs. I, I, I'm okay with that. You know, if the song is great, 
and 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 maybe you're trying to do different things i don't i don't mind a long song at all um if it's if it's done right um but i also think it's interesting how you know you're talking about nobody else sounds like this but there is like if you heard greta van fleet they they're trying to do ex- exactly no this. no 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 tons of people then. sound like this no one sounded like this in 1960. No, no, right, right, yeah, right. That's okay, the key because yeah, yeah, everybody for a while sounded like Led Zeppelin. But there, afterwards. but that's a band now that's really trying to sound like like Led Zeppelin. Um, you know, but uh, and there's also have you guys ever heard of Les Zeppelin? Yes, I have. The, the female Led Zeppelin <laughs> cover band, Les Zeppelin. So I yeah. think I saw them at Bonner once. They were pretty good. Um, but uh, yeah, this is this, this is great, man. And I I, I think. I'm gonna like more as it as it comes along. I think I'm gonna really get more into Zeppelin, and I, I don't know why I didn't really feel them more in, in previous years. It just it just didn't hit me. I think sometimes that happens. But uh, I'm hey, John. Would you say because you're you, you're a little surprised by how much you you like this compared to what you knew about it from before? Um, what was did you just not feel that it was as good as it? as people were making it out to be or you thought that they were overrated like what was your no, hesitancy no I, I don't think led zeppelin's necessarily overrated and i want to start by saying led zeppelin one's always been one of my two or three favorite led zeppelin albums mm-hmm. um i think where my difference of opinion comes on some of the you know mid-career zeppelin stuff that i am a little bit more hit and miss on but i'm sure we'll have plenty of time to talk about that this one the straight ahead nature of it is actually a, a plus for me i like led zeppelin when they sound like this more Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question, like, as are you asking me, like, why have I not connected as, I think the, the reason is because so many bands did Led Zeppelin later and I listened to them concurrently with when I was listening to Led Zeppelin that I did not get to experience them in chronological order. You know what I mean? So there were other people that I think took a little bit of what Zeppelin did and tweaked it in a way that I liked a little bit better. Gotcha. Okay. If that makes yeah. sense. But like I said, you know, hearing it in the context of where it was, you know, I, I had an appreciation, but it really gives you a sonic appreciation for the the time frame of, you know, and we, we've talked about that before. In many ways, I feel like this was the first album from the 1970s that we've listened to <laughs> in the 1960s. Mm. It mm-hmm. feels like an album that was from the 1970s. 70s yeah. I, like it's the only other ones i'd say that kind of i got that vibe from was like the stooges album um really um and and so that was yeah that's it, it's a compliment i can give it is that yeah. it, it sounds outside of its time i mean i've always thought of zeppelin as being a 70s band you know so well, and they really like, are in, yeah. in terms of right the, yeah you know and and you know their sonic footprint is all over the seven it's kind of like is pink floyd a 60s band or a 70s band you know they're really a 70s band but, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Also, one final point I had was how good John Bonham was on drums in this album. He just really he just plays really, really loud. Is mm-hmm. he's a very <laughs> talented drummer. I I think John Bonham's an excellent drummer, but I think that you know a lot of what people love about him is just how loud he plays, and that's you know that always comes through on Led Zeppelin albums. Can I just go back to the rev- the whole reviewing thing? So just so somebody so Rolling Stone, right? They've they've been no, notorious for you know giving bad reviews, obviously mm-hmm. from the website that John was talking about, particularly with Led Zeppelin. So somebody has to, somebody does the review, right? Like in a magazine or a publication. So some one person listens to the album, does the review, but does that have to go through like an editorial board? I can't it can't just be one person's. Like Jan Wenner had to approve all of the. Or like a series of people. It's not just based yeah. on one person, right? When you say Rolling Stone does the review, you're not just saying Lester Bangs is doing the review if he's the reviewer, you know? So, like, do you, I, I wonder if that's 
like I mean, what the process for that is, and maybe it varies from one magazine or publication to the next. But it's I, I'm just kind of curious about that as we're talking about it. Like, who really made that decision? Who really was the one that said, you know, or was it everybody? Did everybody really at Rolling Stone hate it, or were there some people that were dissenters that that got overruled? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that's an interesting question. It's hard for me to say because I've never been a person that um, is directed to my music from critic reviews. I kind of I think just even from an early age realized that. You know, the only way to judge an album, right, is do you like it or not? And so, um, and I would assume it's you're you're going to pick people that have a similar, especially back then when there weren't people sitting in that that room making sure that there was representative <laughs> viewpoints yeah. in that room. You know, mm -hmm. it's very much the same the same room for the most part. Well, the most the most the most benefit that I ever got out of reviews was if you like this, then you might like this, right? Like, mm -hmm. so this band sounds like this, or they have elements of that that can you can kind of get a comparison to other stuff that you might know. Um, I found that to be helpful. And if, I've also found it just if artists say, oh, I'm really into this, like an artist that you know. Like, that's how I found out about Wolf Parade. Like, you know, Wynn Butler from Arcade Fire was talking about it. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But as far as reviews go, I think, um, you know, comparing other out records is where I get the most, um, most out of that. But... Uh, yeah, it's just it's interesting how these things look in hindsight, you know, and yep. how other, you know, does did the person that panned it really does they do they still hate it or are they yeah. <laughs> they stick are they sticking to their guns or have they come around now, you know? So uh, I think we can all change our minds. Yeah, being provocative and having a strong viewpoint sells magazines too, especially back then. So, but yeah, that's Led Zeppelin, the start of our Led Zeppelin journey. <laughs> but. Um, Continuing on the Beatles journey, now we've got Matt with Rubber Soul. Oh, God, I have to talk about them again. Right. <laughs> don't tell me you're getting tired of talking about the Beatles. I don't think I am. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I am in the sense that, like, it's kind of, I'm just like, all right, do I have the Beatles or Dylan this week? You know, so it is something to be said for, not, for uh, you know, trying something new. But, um, mm -hmm. but I do love both of them. So if I'm going to talk about somebody a lot, it might as well be them. Yep. All right, so um, in the opening montage, we're doing uh, the Beatles, Rubber Soul, and in the opening montage, you heard a clip from In My Life, and now we're going to hear something from I'm Looking Through You. You're thinking of me the same old way You were above me, but not today The only difference is you're down there I'm looking So this is the number eight album, number eight, fellas, in the of all uh, time. Of all, no, not of all time. No, <laughs> it's pretty good though. I mean, yeah. eight, eight in the '60s, the Rubber Soul was two in 1965, and 26 overall. Oh, so this is up there. Um, it is the Beatles' sixth studio album, and it was mostly recorded over a period of about a month, from October through November of 1965. And it was released on December 3rd, 1965. There was a lot of pressure coming at the band at this time to release that record prior to Christmas. And uh, they followed through. So, but because of that, there was a, they, they did have some trouble trying to crank out songs, oddly enough, because this album is chock full of gems. This is a fantastic right. record. And they were kind of under the gun to write some songs for this. Um, and this is still what they came out with. So that's all the more impressive. Um, it's, 
the second Beatles album that consists of all originals. Um, you remember the first one? Hard Day's Night. You got it. Got it. Yep. So th- the uh, it's the first. It's also the first recording in their careers where they didn't really have any other obligations. So they were not touring at this time. They were not filming any movies. They were not doing any radio, you know, uh, promos or any commitments or anything like that. They basically just had to focus on the studio work, and um, and they you know really really decided that this was going to be kind of an. This is the first, I guess you could say, true artistic statement that they were trying to make. Um, they were getting. A little sick of the touring and the screaming fans. They were getting exhausted from all of the Beatlemania stuff, um, and they they really wanted to kind of start to abandon the, uh, the 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 singles format. Although they were doing singles at still at this time. I mean, while they were recording this album, which actually had no singles that were released from this record, uh, they did oh. record Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out, which were double A sides. So um, so those those were the songs that were coming out as singles at that time. Um. But they were really starting to get inspired by, you know, Dylan, the birds. They really liked the stuff that the birds were doing. Um, and, uh, and and so they wanted to do more exploring in the studio. They wanted to cr- specifically cre- start to create songs that either would be impossible or really difficult to play live. And that's and this is, um, you know, kind of what they came up with. So this record is kind of a mixture. It's known as a mixture of pop, soul, and f- and folk songs that were inspired a lot by um, some of the Motown and Stax artists that they were listening to in the States while they were out on tour. Uh, and um, Lennon referred to it as the Pot Album, and Harrison called it his favorite personal Beatles album. Hmm. Um, so the album title was taken from the clo- colloquialism Plastic Soul, which was apparently a term that a um, black blues artist used to uh, to describe the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, the, the the blues that they were playing because, you know, they're mm, they're, they're white dudes. They're yeah. white dudes playing soul. Right. And so McCartney that, you know, had used that term as well to describe them. And then they just kind of changed it a little bit to uh, to rubber soul. Um, and I like this. Uh, what was it this quote from Ringo um, in a 1966 press conference? Uh, Ringo um he said that they called the album Rubber Soul to acknowledge that in comparison to American soul artists, quote, we are white and haven't got what they've got. Um, <laughs> and, he, and he added that this was true of the other British uh, artists who were trying to attempt this music as well. So it's kind of the Beatles. It's an homage to soul music, it, but it's also done with a little bit, little bit tongue in cheek, knowing that like, hey, we're also like we're, we're kind of being posers here mm-hmm. at the same time. But this album also demonstrates the Beatles, uh, their increasing, you know, maturity as songwriters and lyricists. Uh, you know, they were really trying to focus on incorporating brighter guitar tones, new instrumentations, uh, specifically the sitar, fuzz bass, uh, the harmonium. And they were striving for more expressive sounds, um, you know, and, uh, you know, different types of arrangements in their music. Um, and so this would also they would continue with this process throughout their next couple, specifically with their next two albums, Revolver and, and Sgt. Pepper. Uh, there was some, uh, uh, you know, starting some some um, slight, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, there were some notes of, of, of disharmony within the band, I guess you could say, because they were starting to have more disagreements in the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recording engineer, Norman Smith, stated that the uh, the students, the studio sessions were starting um, to show conflict, that there was a clash between John and Paul, which was becoming more obvious. And uh, and he wrote, he also wrote, as far as, as far as Paul was concerned, George could do no right. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, so there was starting a little bit at this time as well. 
but it was very Matt, highly... how long before we have our Beatles uh, t- creative tension on the <laughs> Coming to Stacks oh, podcast? Oh, we're still early, man. We're still like, we. what are we? We're in the with the CTS podcast right now. I think, you know, that won't, you know, we have several more, you know, uh, yeah, decades. years to go. Yeah, <laughs> it'll come, John. Don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, but this was highly influential on their other peers, um, you know, leading to, to, you know, widespread focus away from the single format, looking at albums as works of art, as cohesive, um, you know, uh, pieces. And um, the recording took place after the band's tour of America, which included their legendary performance at Shea Stadium, which was in August of 1965. They had already met Dylan, but later in the year they would meet Elvis. And they also had their cartoon, the, the Beatles Saturday morning cartoon began airing at this time as well. Oh, interesting. Yep. That used to be on Nick, Nick, Nickelodeon, I think, or maybe VH1 or something. They used to air the old Beatles cartoons. Um, they're probably out there on YouTube or something. How somewhere. many? How many episodes of that are they, there? I, I don't know how many episodes. I think it was. I think it was on air for like two years, okay. something like that. I'm gonna so, look it up. There you go. Do it. Ringo's nose is is really big in, in the cartoon. <laughs> I, I, rem, I that's the only thing I really remember. Like, damn, that guy's got a huge schnoz. Um. So before the recording session, McCartney was giving a new bass guitar, and this was uh, another Rickenbacker, Rickenbacker 4001, which, which produced a fuller sound than the hollow-body Hoff, Hoffner bass that he was using. Um, but it allowed for greater melodic precision, um, and uh, you'll notice there was – I mean, it's a very melodic album. Obviously, it's the Beatles, but um, Paul's bass was, was a little different. You're getting a little bit more of George's Rickenbacker as well. He's kind of going back to it, um, which uh, you're getting some of that jangle pop. Uh, and um, the the album cover was kind of done. It's, it's a little bit stretched out. It's a little bit it's kind of an accident, really. They were they had the album pic, the, the picture taken. The photographer had set up a lot of the different slides, kind of on these cardboard um, like cutouts that they were kind of leaning leaning up against. One of them fell backwards and kind of like leaned into a light, which elongated the uh, the, the picture. And the Beatles thought that was great. They were like, can you do that? Can you make it stretch out a little bit and look all trippy? And, you know, they were, of <laughs> course, smoking lots of weed. So that's why it's a little bit stretched out like that. But um, so this is Rubber Soul. This is the beginning of the Beatles really, you know, taking it to the next level, you know, um, it, you know, taking it, uh, you know, stuff that they did with help, but really kind of bringing it to, uh, you know, to that more artistic, if you will, level. Um, uh, and it became, you know, uh, very influ- influential to many artists. Brian Wilson, you know, famously said that he went out and started after hearing this record. He went out and started writing Pet Sounds, and that's kind of and then and then Pet Sounds mm-hmm. then in turn inspired Sgt. Pepper. So they were a lot of that that competition was was there, but it was also really pushing other artists to um, to 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 do to do more. Um, shortly after, you know, this is you know several months later, the Rolling Stones released Aftermath, and that was their first real you know kind of as we talked about before the first Jagger you know fully um, original. You know, Full original album, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And John Cale said that Rubber Soul was an inspiration as he and Lou Reed developed their band, the uh, the Velvet Underground. So the, oh, yeah. you have John, you have Rubber Soul to thank for uh, White Light, White Heat. Um, another thing that <laughs> the Beatles might have had <laughs> a hand in. It sounds nothing like them, but uh, yeah. So um, and I I think we'll just leave it at that right now. So let's start with um our reactions to this record. Josh, we'll start with you. What do you think of Rubber Soul? Did you, you, you're pretty familiar with this going into, into this week, correct? Yeah, definitely. It was like a warm blanket. The Beatles have done it again, folks. They put out a great record. Shocker. What a, what a surprise. Um, I love this album. I forgot how 
amazing this album is is now number two behind hard day's night on my favorite beatles albums i think hard day's night is slightly stronger for me because i think some of these songs like matt said there's so many good songs on this album why not you know split them up or make two albums or something but um and some of them are are weaker a little weaker for me than in hard day's night but i love the the experimentation that they're doing at this point i hear that on this album i picked up on that uh sitar especially norwegian wood which is one of my favorite beatles songs um i heard that fuzz bass too i think it's on i think for yourself maybe um, yes yep i heard yep. that and um even something like just the french the french uh lyrics in michelle are mm-hmm. is a little bit different than what they're used to be doing um, i've always liked that song josh as well. do you remember who that song was uh, inspired by or John. It's not Nico, is it? No. Wasn't it a George Harrison's soon-to-be wife? No, that's well, there, there's Patty Boyd influence on here. But no, Michelle, if you remember, talking back, Miles Davis was inspired by Juliet Greco. Oh, the, uh, the French, The French correct. bohemian yes. lifestyle. So, uh, yeah. Is my oh, Michelle right. uh, tribute to this song? John Lennon was a fan, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Juliet Greco and Nico had some serious Kavorka going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just, it's just, again, it's one great song after another. I think Girl is a little a bit weak for me. That's kind of one of the weaker songs. Although I like Lennon's first, like, uh, part, verse, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, in my life is an all is an all timer. I love how sad and melancholy that is, and the piano um, is really is like that the cherry on top in that song for me. And then even even small things like at the end of uh, during Run for Your Life, where they put the the emphasis on the D and end. That's the end, uh, little girl. Mm-hmm. I've always liked that um, the way they sing that, and it, it's just so perfect. Um, I don't. I mean, to be fair, I don't really think of this as a soul album. I think of it more as a pop album. I don't see the soul aspects necessarily, but they are just, man, they're just writing really well at this point. Um, Despite the fact that there may be tension or not getting along, they are, they're right. They're writing good songs. I still don't understand where all this pressure is coming from for them to keep producing so quickly i mean they are like the number one band in the world can't they like push back a little and say no we need we need a break or something well that would come in 1970 josh (laughs) (laughs) i think part of it i think part of it was um it was it was what people bands did i mean all these Mm. every band was putting out multiple records a year uh they were certainly selling as much or more so more than anybody and the record company wanted to keep making me money you know and then this is just what they were pushed to do so it was yeah it was just more of a cultural thing i think but they were so good at it that they might have felt more pressure um you know and yeah like let's get it out by christmas you got you got a month and a half let's do Jesus. it boom yeah go. it's crazy oh i love the cowbell too on drive my car i always love a good <laughs> cowbell song um and the percussion in general they they always use good uh instrumentation with like tambourines and and things like that i feel like they put them in great places that just adds to the the catchiness of of their songs mm-hmm. but yeah if you haven't heard this album in a while uh, please listen to it. it it's breezy it's great I, I can't recommend it enough awesome all right john so i'm gonna do this as sort of some musings as opposed to like a formal mm. 
review here. Um, the first thing Deep I want to say is um, this is the second <laughs> time where I've been impressed by the Beatles churning out two remarkably fully formed albums in the same year. I think a couple weeks ago we talked about how Magical Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper came out the same year, mm-hmm. uh, Sgt. Pepper's, and you know this was the same year as Help. And uh, it's just remarkable that they released those two albums as well as I like how Matt just randomly threw it. Well, you know, they were going to throw in like (laughs) Day Tripper and like some other, but they just ended up being sort of singles they released. So Uh those were also in the uh, Rubicon, so to speak, of the Beatles in 1965. So, I mean, the... The prolific nature of the Beatles songwriting and the quality of their songwriting is, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons why the Beatles are a wonderful band and an influential band, and a great band, but that's, you know, right up at the top that they can just churn out this many songs. Um, I think what struck me in listening to this this time is it is definitely the Beatles taking a step up in terms of their instrumentation. Um, I know that it's often heralded as they're writing more complex songs, and they are, but they're they're not quite at where they would be at like Revolver and Sgt. Pepper either. And and there's some strengths to that as well because they go pretty esoteric at that time. And for every great song, there's also, you know, a song that, you know, they're just throwing out word salad and stuff like that along the way. This is still primarily love songs, which the Beatles write fantastic love songs, but the instrumentation does take a step up. With that being said, I was, I knew it, but I was surprised how much this album sounded like help and was almost mm. like the equivalent of a double album um, with Help, whereas Help is a little bit more poppy and singles-driven, whereas this is a little bit more of the deeper cut. Matt, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of a, 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 a excitement right here. It's kind of like Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, in that mm. you know one of them had most of the singles on it, and then the other one kind of had the deeper cuts, the fan appreciation cuts along the way, and that's kind of how... I saw Help and, and Rubber Soul are always paired for me in some ways, uh, not just because they were recorded in the same year, but because I think they come from the same spirit of the Beatles transitioning from early Beatles into a more full-formed band. Um, and that journey continues with Revolver, and you know we'll get there down the road. But yeah, there's, there's wonderful songs spread from the beginning of this album to the end, literally from song one, Drive My Car, to song 14, Run For Your Life, which are both excellent songs that bookend the mm-hmm. album. Um, you know, Other standouts for those that haven't heard it, you know, In My Life has been talked about. It's a wonderful song. Uh, you Won't See Me, uh, What Goes On are two songs that I really like that I guess would classify as deeper cuts for mm-hmm. the Beatles. Uh, Wait as well is a song that I really do like. Um, and I, I hadn't mentioned Norwegian Wood either, which is... Um, close to as um, famous a song as there is on this album. But yeah, just uh, once again, you know, the Beatles at this stage just they never overstay their welcome. It's just, if you look at it in Spotify, it's just a series of the number two with a certain amount of seconds after it for every single track on this album. And, um, you know, in an era where everybody else is sometimes you know, putting on at least one track that just seems like it sort of overstayed its welcome. Um, It's just nice to have somebody um, committed to churning out enjoyable pop songs that still are profound and um, are complex in two, uh, two minutes and 49 seconds. And, you know, that's kind of an underrated skill, being complex in a tight time frame. Uh, it's much easier to be complex when you're sprawling it out over eight minutes, right? It's almost like, look at me, I'm complex. But to do it in the frame of a song that also can get radio play um, is is a remarkable accomplishment. Um, uh, Josh talked about a lot of the instrumentation that's in here. The fuzz bass always stands out to me. 
um, on this album. Um, but the other thing that stands out to me, and I know Matt way back when talked about how I think it was Harrison actually played the Rickenbacker before the Birds did, right? Yep. You started with yeah. Hard Day's and, Night and was I mean, the big Rickenbacker, uh, yeah. Yeah, and album. I mean, this is the album where the jangle, like, becomes a part of the Beatles sound quite a bit. And, like, I always hear, I mean, it was present a little bit before that, but this is where it shows up enough that it's like, oh, okay, that's a, sig you know, maybe not a signature sound, but it's a sound that they pull out mm -hmm. um, more often than not. And so I really particularly enjoy when George Harrison um, in uh, uh, puts that into tracks as well as when um it's coupled off of um of uh paul's very underrated bass skills um mm -hmm. and the last thing i'll say is that in many ways i think this is the you know matt this is going to be maybe a hot take but i don't know i think this is the beatles best harmony album um the harmonies on this album yeah they are do have a lot of good lush harmonies. and in every single song well maybe except for the ringo song where it feels like ringo's <laughs> just doing his thing and the rest of them are kind of just you almost feel like just in the background they're kind of like looking out the window or like having a smoke and like just sort of half playing mm -hmm. while ringo's doing his song but man he is so enthusiastic that you know it's there but on the rest of the songs you know there's um they're a tight musical en enterprise all the way down to their harmonies which are which sound fantastic um and i think how good a harmony band the Beatles are can often be lost, um, especially if you're a person that only looks at the Beatles as their later output and forgets the early and middle output, which really the harmonies are what stand stand out and I think really establish them along with their songwriting chops. So strong, strong approval. I mean, it's I've long said, and, and I'm willing to revisit this as we go through Beatles albums, I've long said that Help and Rubber Soul are two of my three favorite Beatles albums. I'll leave the other one as... A to be continued uh, uh, and revisited down the road. And, and maybe I'll change my mind as we listen to this. But I haven't so far. Um, Help and Rubber Soul are still my favorite Beatles albums that we've listened to as good as some of the other stuff is. Awesome. So this is probably, uh, it's, it's my favorite album that we've covered so far by the Beatles, by far. Um, it is either my second, third, or fourth Beatle, favorite Beatles album. I Hello. haven't decided. I'm leaning towards two, though, to be <laughs> yeah. honest. Um, uh, I, I will say what the other two will be. Uh, but I, as I think so about So you think this, by far, Matt, huh? For of me, the ones we've covered? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I, I Look, I really love Help. I really love Hard Day's Night. Um, but I, I can eat. When I say that, I, I mostly mean it's a very easy call for me to make. I don't think mm -hmm. it's, I don't think it's close. I love help. And I see what you're saying, John, about, you know, it kind of being the one a, and this being the one B. I, I don't know if I, I have to think more about your use your illusion, uh, uh, analogy. Cause I think that there were good singles, pop big singles on both of those, but that's a, I don't even know. We'll discuss that. Cause we're not talking about those. Albums, oh, we're going to have to do a bonus episode. Oh, God, they're so good. <laughs> um, but, that's uh, a that's a seminal album for the three of us. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but John, when I say that, I don't mean that as a slight as those uh, for those other records. It's just that um, this just stands out as like those are those are kind of middle high range, and this is like in the top echelon. I would say for mm -hmm. me, um, I pretty much agree with everything that you're saying. I, I, I but I have to disagree with Josh. I don't think there's any weak songs on here. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that you know I I guess I understand why you might not like girl. 
girl. It's a little bit of a different sound. Maybe the inhaling, which some people thought was him inhaling drugs, um, <laughs> you know. Which, but uh, it, it uh, I can see how that might be a little annoying or whatever. But um, I think that I think that the song construction here is fantastic. I, I agree with you what you're saying, John. I don't know. That's a good question. What's their best harmony album? But there's seven, certainly some great stuff going on here, um, and they're just they're they're really starting to pave the way for what they're going to do later on. Um, into and, and, and which will culminate in some ridiculously sounding, you know, like pro- overproduced stuff that we covered in the, the last album with Magical Mystery Tour and with all the mm-hmm. crazy stuff that they were doing here. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting to say that this is really like two years removed from that, really, essentially, you know. Um, hmm. So, uh, but you've got stuff like the sitar on Norwegian wood. That's the first time that they're using that. That that inspires the Stones to do it. Um, it was actually David Crosby from the Birds that that encouraged George to check out Ravi Shankar because um, it wasn't just the. Uh, the, the use of remember we talked when we did help and they yep. in the recording of the movie that's where the, there was a sitar in one of the scenes and that's where George first saw one or heard one really and um, it was a combination of that and his you know hanging out with David Crosby that uh, that encouraged him to check out Ravi Shankar um, so he played he played the sitar on that song George uh, George, Har- George Harrison did. yeah he was the yeah. sitar guy and you're gonna see that come out especially with uh, the next two albums he plays he plays on revolver it's on um, it's pretty much exclusively on a track on his his track on uh, sergeant pepper mm-hmm. um, and, but that's like that starts raga rock stuff like that you know um i i read a fact that like nor uh, nowhere man we haven't even talked i mean that's the harmony song you know <laughs> yeah. that is that is the beetle harmony song it was actually one of only two songs on this record that they that they tried to perform live and there are recordings of this if you could see clips of them trying to sing it sounds terrible because they can't <laughs> hear each other because everybody's screaming and so mm. they they can't get these intricate harmony parts but when they can record it like they do here uh, it's yeah, it's it's so good. It really makes that song, and that's a song that Lennon wrote. It's one of the songs that he wrote when um, feeling, all, you know, after spending hours and hours trying to write a song, to you know, being forced to write a song, and he comes up with this right under pressure, which is just you know, which is phenomenal. I think you got some really good Harrison songs. I think this is where George starts to establish himself as a as a solid songwriter, particularly with. Um, what is it? If I needed someone, that's the real jangle guitar. That was him, mm. John. He actually took that riff on "If I Needed Someone" from a directly from a bird song called "Bells of Rimini," which yeah, I think was on the like Mr. Which yep. is on the Mr. Tambourine Man album, which we, we didn't cover. But uh, if you listen to it, it's very similar. Um, so it, you know, they he influenced the birds, and they influenced you know Harrison right back. But I think mm-hmm. "If I Needed Someone" is. Harrison's it's considered Harrison's strongest song up until this point and um it's it's hard to argue with that um it's a it's a great song um and uh I I I also find it interesting when you talk about in my life I always thought that was a straight up Lennon song like flat out but there's some discrepancy of whether you know McCartney always said that Lennon wrote the lyrics and he wrote the um the music but then I, there was this stat on Wikipedia that I thought was nuts. It says a two thousand. Apparently, there was a study that was done in two thousand eighteen at Harvard University. Um, they used something called bag of words modeling that con- conducted by artificial intelligence that reported that there was a zero point one eight percent probability of McCartney writing the song, a eighty one point one percent chance that Mac- that Lennon wrote the song, and a forty three point six percent certainty that that. Um, McCartney uh, wrote the bridge, so I'm like, 
you have algorithms now that can kind <laughs> of like you put out. into a computer <laughs> that will tell you the percentage possibility that somebody wrote a song. But uh, I just I, I had to put that in there because I thought that that just sounded ridiculous and I've never heard of anything like that before. Um, but uh, yeah, but apparently McCartney had a had a big hand in writing the melody to or some parts of the music to that. And uh, that's Lennon's one of Lennon's favorite songs. Um, it's it's one of the first ones that he he called it his, his first real true piece of work because um, it was so personal. Um, and I disagree with Lennon because he hated Run For Your Life, that the last track on it. He said it was, uh, he thought it was overly misogynistic. He said it, it was the, um, it was, he dismissed it as, uh, you know, he said it was his least favorite Beatles song. It's the song he most regrets writing. Um, it's, it's, it also got slammed, I think, critically, but I, I don't know, man. I think that, I think that that chorus is great when they hit the, uh, catch you with another man, that, yeah. like the harmony in that. I love that part. Melodically, I'm not even listening to lyrics. The melodies like hooks me right in. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I love this record. What goes on? You talked about that, John. That's kind of like that country Ringo, uh, you know, song that yeah. he's got going on. That's the like other one naturally. that I kind of don't like that much as much as the other songs mm, you know like so. it's the only uh it's the only song in the beatles catalog that's a, that's uh credited to mccartney lennon and starkey for writing credits because ringo ringo said he wrote about five words and i haven't done a thing since oh, was his quote about that but um <laughs> that was actually a song that lennon had written um when he was with the quarrymen so that was a song that they had they were actually gonna thinking about releasing that um after please please me or something like in the early days but they just never did um and this was actually seen as a song it's almost like a filler when they were trying to come up with songs to put on the record but um i I really like it it's got that country twang it's ringo sings it perfectly um it's not the strongest harmony but there's still harmony in there and when they do the chorus i actually find myself singing the harmony part here so um so i know i'm going a little long here but uh I, i yeah, I love this record. I think this is them really hitting it on all all cylinders, um, and uh, you know, taking it to a little bit different level. Not hugely; they're not hugely going out yet. I think that really starts with the next record. But um, yeah, I th- this is a really fun record to listen to. Um, never gets old. I think when the first, I think I think when I first got this, um, I was like in I don't know, sophomore or junior in high school. And um, I was always familiar with all the singles. And like I said, there was no real singles that came off of this. So when I first got this, it was just like one unknown, amazing track after another that I loved right away. So this is this also kind of holds a special place for me because um, it was really at the beginning when I really started getting into them. And uh, it was a it was a real nice surprise and kind of opened my eyes to how great they were. So um, I can't say enough good things about it. Nice. Sounds like positive all around. I have a little bit on the Beatles TV show. There were 39 episodes. Each episode was named after a Beatles song. It aired on Saturday mornings, and then it was rebroadcast on MTV in 86 and 87 and Disney Channel in 89. So maybe you saw it then when it was rebroadcast. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it looks looks really fun and silly. Can we we buy it somewhere, Josh, or stream it somewhere? Oh, uh, good question. Might be cleaning the stack. Yeah, I'll look that up later. By the way, you remember Saturday morning cartoons? Remember when that was a thing? Oh yeah, I was. Remember I was all in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do, Matt. I do remember when. I think Saturday morning cartoons are still a thing, just in a different no, way. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're not just, really. They're they, all day cart yeah. all day cartoons. I remember yeah, actually years ago, I was out of my 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 brother's house, and I was gonna like watch. I was like, oh, it's Saturday morning. Nieces, nephews, let's go watch Saturday morning cartoons. And my sister-in-law was like, Matt, there's cartoons on all the freaking time. There's no, it's no, there's no such thing as Saturday morning cartoons anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me sad. Yep. 
Matt always has his member berries. Always I do, John. Member berries. I do. Yep. I do. But okay. Rubber so now we get go listen to it. Yeah, definitely go. Uh, now we got Char- Charlie Mingus here. Yep. Are you ready for some jazz? I'm always ready for some jazz. Oh, there we go. I'm actually right, becoming so more and more ready for jazz. <laughs> so in the montage, we did track B, duet solo dancers, and you are now going to hear a clip from track C, group dancers. <laughs> Okay, and we are back. So Charles Mingus, probably the last of the big names of 60s jazz, when jazz was still at a prominent place in American popular music. Uh, As we've talked about at length before, by the 70s, uh, it became more of a niche market in terms of commercial releases. Uh, And this will be the second to last jazz album that we cover, period. So um, it will, uh, excuse me, this will... uh, uh, yeah, it will be the second to last album we cover, period. I think we do one in the 70s. So um, so Mingus uh, is kind of like the everyman of jazz. Um, he collaborated during his career with Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, Herbie Hancock, Danny Richmond, and then was it, was the composer of and the front man and a piece of basically bands of everybody else who was anybody else in jazz from uh, roughly about the 1950s until the late 1970s, the time of his death. Um, As you might imagine, because it just seems like every jazz musician from Miles Davis to Bleeding Gums Murphy has a epically tragic life. (laughs) Um, Mingus, like many of his contemporaries, um, lived a hard life um, in terms of his upbringing, um, as well as uh, he was well known for not buying into the drug lifestyle of jazz. In fact, he was, um, as much as he loved um, some of his contemporaries, most notably Charlie Parker, who he considered um, his mentor and the greatest uh, player um, in terms of inspiration to him. He did hate the drug lifestyle, but he was a smoker and was known as sort of an iconoclast. And sadly, he did um, die relatively early. Um uh, at age 58 after a long battle with ALS, which it seems to be particularly cruel for someone who is a jazz musician. So um, I think it's already a tough enough time. I don't know if we, we need to you know, go that way. Um, but just so you know, he is unfortunately another uh, sort of sad story in terms of jazz. But with that being said, his music lives on and is still considered to be um, amongst the most uh, revolutionary and the most... Um, influential jazz music that was uh, created. Um, Just a little bit of a quick bio here. Um, Mingus uh, was a double bassist, a pianist, a composer, and a band leader. Um, Interestingly enough, Mingus's uh, 
first love, and I think what he would have broken into if it was a different time was actually um, classical music, um, but the field was still highly segregated at that time. Um, and that was a big theme of his music was racism, discrimination, injustice, and social issues along the way. Um, and a lot of people think that a lot of his music stemmed from um, a lasting hurt from being excluded from the field of classical music. Um, mm. He most notably studied trombone and cello um, throughout the 30s and was considered to be an excellent player in those, but was basically told that there was not a place for black musicians in classical music. So he moved to these uh, to study the bass in the late 1930s, and his jazz career was picked for him in many ways. Hmm. Um, in uh, he, Mingus is well known as being one of the major figures in the world of collective improvisation, which is exactly what you would think it would be based on hearing it, um, just kind of going in and just playing based on what you're hearing from the person who starts playing. Um, and I think that was why he was able to collaborate with so many famous musicians who played similarly, or he could be plugged and played into places um, as you know, uh, as needed, kind of, because he had that skill set. Um, Mingus was born in Nogales, Arizona, and raised in the Watts section of, of Los Angeles, which was a, a primarily African-American, um, and still remains to this day, a primarily African-American section of Los Angeles. Um, his dad was an army surgeon who um, uh, had a very interesting mixture of uh, different races. He was part African-American, uh, part Native American. There was some German there. His mom was a, uh, a Chinese-British subject of Hong Kong, so she had Chinese uh, and white um, ancestry as well. So um, Charles Mingus really was multi-racial in a time when, you know, he could sort of come at it from different angles uh, based on where the world was at that point. Um, he was only allowed to listen to church music in his house, but as you might imagine, you know, for someone who showed an aptitude for music, he found ways around that and became familiar with modern music, most notably uh, listening to Duke Ellington quite a bit. Um, but like I said, he his first love was still doing classical music, not necessarily becoming a jazz musician. Um, by his teenage years, he was writing advanced musical pieces uh, that were considered similar to the third stream of jazz. Um, I could, I'll put up some clips to illustrate um, third stream jazz, but really Mingus, um, as well as a German composer, are sort of known as the two people who are the best examples of it. So in listening to Mingus, you'll, you know, maybe not this album, but his earlier works for sure, you'll get it. But a long story short of third stream is it's a fusion of jazz and classical music. So Mingus did... Um, managed to weave some of that classical music into his jazz playing. Um, he earns a rep of being a, a jazz pro, uh, prodigy and tours with all the big names uh, throughout the 40s, most notably Charlie Parker in the early 50s. Um, he considers him a seminal influence um, and the greatest genius and innovator in jazz history. Uh, the problem for him was that uh, he, he really had a love-hate in that he loved his music, but he hated his self-destructive lifestyle. Um, and he just didn't like the idea that you had to be self-destructive to be a jazz musician. Um, and that was a big bone of contention and, you know, Charlie Parker, like like Coltrane and like many others, died very um, early. You know, Coltrane did kick his addiction. Charlie Parker never did. Um, obviously, we talked about um, Dolphy before, who uh, obviously had a totally different scenario where he had an early health issue that uh, claimed his life. Um, but Parker was did not like that lifestyle. He did live hard, though, in terms of his intensity, in terms of how he saw the world. Um, he was a chain smoker um, and 
I think there was an intensity with him that burned throughout all of his music that gets brought up quite a bit. Um, interestingly enough, Parker starts a record label in 1952 that he calls Debut Records, and it's focused entirely on recording young, previously unrecorded artists. Um, he formed this because record labels, you know, as we've talked about for all musicians, had a reputation, certainly even then in 1952, for treating musicians poorly in terms of royalty rates. Um, it's it, Unfortunately, it's not super successful, but I don't think it was designed to be successful commercially. Um, there were some people, most notably Dizzy Gillespie, who said that Mingus as a record owner was somewhat guilty of the same practices that he was supposedly starting the record label from, but a lot of other people credit him for allowing their music to be heard. Um, and so I think um, in general, he, it's viewed as a, as a positive, even though there weren't really any big hits outside of Mingus's own creations um, himself that were on there. Um, during his most prolific 10-year stretch um, in the late 50s and then early 60s, which is where this album, uh, The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, comes from, Mingus recorded 30 records and broke through to the mainstream with, I'll do my best in terms of the Pithecanthropopus erectus is the name of his um, big breakout hit. Um, he, it was, it's probably considered one of his three biggest albums. Uh, the one we're going to cover today is another one. And then, um, Mingus Ai, uh, I believe I'll, I'll double check to make sure I got the pronunciation of that right, is the other, uh, big album from him. Um, and they all came during this time period. Uh, like I said, uh, Mingus continued to be prolific throughout the 60s and the early 70s, even when he's no longer able to play the bass or play any instrumentation. He is still very much involved in the studio and giving um, directions and composing all the way up until the end. Um, another thing to know is that when he collaborates uh, with Danny Richmond, uh, a drummer, uh, and pianist Jockey Bayard, uh, Bayard, they are uh, known as the Almighty Three, and so they're considered one of the best trios in jazz history. Um, this album was released in 1963 and was immediately a huge hit in the jazz world and even broke through into the mainstream a little bit. Um, it's notable because it's written as a single continuous composition, even though if you were to look at it as an album, it... I guess you could say in one part, you could say it's four parts because it's part one, part two, part three, and then the song mm -hmm. title for the final piece incorporates three other pieces, but sort of uh, pieced together. Um, but you are designed to listen to this as a single um, composition. Um, in that way, what it kind of reminded me of a little bit is the Moody Blues album that we covered that mm. kind of had the same general mm -hmm. idea. Um, this one, you know, was de designed by his own... Um, by his own words to be his magnum opus um and it's kind of viewed that way and he looked he wanted it to be sort of an expression of him as a musician and a person and his musical stylings and it's considered to be a very effective um way to kind of get the feel for what charles mingus is as a musician um he was a perfectionist um and so there was a lot of studio over overdubbing on this which is kind of interesting for a guy that was known for collective improvisation um, and also notably, it um, features notes from his psychotherapist, Dr. Edmund Pollock, as part of the overall theme of the album, which in 1963 is a pretty revolutionary, I mean, it would be a revolutionary thing now, but especially then when there was significant stigmas with um, therapy uh, to mm -hmm. so openly put that out there was considered so, to be um, quite an interesting um, uh, artistic decision. So, so that's a little you, bit of the overview that led to this. Would you call this a uh, concept album, John? Um, 
I think I, I don't know if I call it a concept album <laughs> because there's a lot of jazz that's like this. You know what I mean? That's co- sort of goes on a theme or it's a, a thematic album. I would say is more how I would describe this. It's it's interestingly enough, it's designed to be a ballet, and you know, um, so he oh, okay. he. It's a single continuous composition. And that's why all the songs have dancer in it, yeah, you know, one, two, and three, because it's supposed to be sort of viewed in that context as well. There's, Mingus was not, he did not give a, a lot of say in terms of, you know, what he was going for exactly other than, you know, it's the things that I've mentioned and sort of even with what he said, there's a thousand different interpretations of what he's going for, how it plays in the deeper subconscious roots and stuff like that. So, um, but I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit as we get into the review of the album. Um, maybe let's start with Josh. What are your thoughts on this album? Um, I really like the album. I think this is my favorite jazz album that we've listened to. It sounds very different from all the other jazz that we've listened to. I found it a lot more, what came to mind was it, it sounded more sultry and sexy and like a smoky bar, almost like night music or like music that's in a film noir. Um, and I really dug that, that late night vibe that it that I feel like it has. Um, I really liked how there's different instrumentation on this album as well, like the tuba um, plays, plays a part, in, a significant role in this, uh, in the music on this. And... I feel like, so John, did he play the bass on this album or what, what instrument did he play? He did. Yep. He played okay. the bass on this album. Yeah. So I feel like his, his playing is different than Coltrane's and some of the other artists that we heard. He, his playing feels more like supportive to the other artists. Cause you get like different, like the horns on this album or like the piano they have more they seem more stood out than the double bass i don't remember hearing a double bass solo on this for example or it just doesn't have the kind of strong like the sheets of sound that like coltrane has you know where he blasts in um and it sounds so pronounced compared to this this sounds more like an ensemble even though at times everybody is playing you know, different parts, almost like different rhythms and tempos or, or something <laughs> almost like Captain Beefheart at times. But, um, do you guys get what I'm saying at all about that? Like, I don't really see, like you can pick Coltrane out on Coltrane's albums. I don't necessarily know if I could have picked him out on this. Well, album. Coltrane plays, Coltrane plays the saxophone, which is a prominent loud right. instrument. Mingus is playing, you know, stand up acoustic bass, which is hard to, especially in an album like this. Yeah. It's not, it's not designed to stand out. There's a, there's a slight part in here, I think where he's got the solo going on, but mm-hmm. it's not, I, I, it's almost designed for him to be in the background and to, you know, take second well, fiddle to right. the rest of yeah. the band. Well, you have to remember he primarily, primarily thought of himself at this point as a and this piece as is being a composer okay so like the idea of him being the primary musician was probably lesser to the idea of him being the composer and the arranger of this piece gotcha okay so that yeah i guess that's what i was picking up on when listening to this album it's it's not almost in the way that miles davis was on his records like sketches of spain and in the thing it's mm-hmm. not about it's not about him right as the star quote-unquote star it's it's more like the band itself and and getting the themes and and like john said the composing of this entire album out there so i i, I picked up on that i also like the recurring flute uh i guess it's a flute 
that comes throughout the the flute melody that comes throughout all of the tracks uh, if it was designed as a ballet that makes sense because or thought of as a ballet um, because it reminded me almost of like Fantasia or something like that where it would it would keep coming up and also the Spanish guitar I, I noticed that as well throughout on the songs mm-hmm. and yeah just different just kind of a different sounding jazz album that we, we've heard it's it was very um I found it very pleasing to listen to. I didn't find it especially difficult. Um, there are sections where there's a lot going on, but it didn't feel um, too chaotic or abrasive in that way. Um, I, I really liked it, and I, I kind of dug his vibe. I, I hadn't heard anything by him before, so this was a nice nice um, introduction to him. And I probably should mention that the instrumentation on this before I throw to Matt is there's flute from Dick Hafer, there's baritone sax from Jerome Richardson, there is the bass from Mingus himself, there's Quinton Jackson's trombone, there's two other um, horn players in the background on trumpet, um, Don Butterfield on tuba, there's a tenor sax, um, there's a Jay Burliner plays that flamenco guitar part that uh, Josh just mentioned, and we talked about Danny Richmond on drums and Jockey Bayard on uh, piano as well. So yeah, like um, Mingus also plays a little bit of piano on this as well. So, mm-hmm. so Matt, what about you? What do you think? So I didn't know any of this going into this week, and I I didn't know what to expect, and but this wasn't it. Um, I think one of the things I like about the jazz records that we've covered is that I think that even though there hasn't been a ton of them, it's been a small percentage. I don't know, maybe we've we've covered what seven or eight or something like that mm-hmm. of the total one hundred. I, I think that we've gotten a good representation of a variety of different types of jazz. And, you know, this kind of came as a surprise. I was expecting this to be a little bit more in the vein of the Coltrane records that we listened to. Um, this sounded, this was a much fuller sound. Um, it was uh, intense at times. Um, the orca, you can totally tell there's tons of instrumentation going on here. It yeah. seemed like. I felt like I was like getting ready for a burlesque show is what it was, you know, a lot of, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, the horns and the way that they're doing the horns. Cause a lot of it, I could tell that they not only were they playing the horns, but I'm guaranteeing they're taking the plunger, the end of like a, of a plunger and putting it at the bell of the horn and they're moving it back and forth to kind of really get that drawn out wah sound and like back and forth. Yeah. And that's, that's totally what they're doing there. It almost sounds like words um, at times. I was see, I was wondering if mm-hmm. they were saying words. It's just a really, it's a different type of effect. I don't think we've heard it on any jazz records that that we've covered so far mm-hmm. um so i really liked like the unique aspects like i think the flamenco guitar is a great example of that that's like one of you that doesn't that's not really something that i think of when you know you think of traditional jazz right but that's pretty prominent at the end of the third track and at the beginning of the fourth um and uh so i i think i liked it overall it's it i, I certainly liked it more as i listened to it um because the first listen was kind of like what is this like i was just not ex- not expecting it um it definitely does feel like it comes from you know from like a, a, a movie like a cherry had a good word for it cinematic it seems like it's a very mm-hmm. cinematic type of sound um it's definitely interesting uh, the, the the way that all the instruments kind of come together. It's 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 similar in some ways to Sketches of Spain in that you could tell that this is a much more of a orchestration, more composed. There's a lot more instruments. It is more about Josh. I think you're kind of a good comparison there with Miles Davis and, and Charles Mingus, you know, being a little bit more to the side as you push mm-hmm. forward the, you know, the the, the other instrumentation, the other artists. Um, so. 
I, I think that that's an interesting aspect of it as well. I, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting listening to jazz. It's it, I, I think I do like it overall, especially if it's not like totally the avant-garde stuff, not as much. But um, but it, it, it's something that I think that it, I rarely go to. But when I go to, I, I'm glad that I like it. I'm glad that it's there. Uh, I still think it's a hard listen because it's definitely a different way of approaching music and listening to it than than, than what I'm used to with pop and rock music and, and folk and, you know, in particular. But this is, I think that there's there's definitely some rewards here, and um, he certainly he certainly gives a sonic palette. He puts you in a certain place, you know, um, mm-hmm. and and it definitely feels like kind of like that '40s, '30s, maybe even '50s vibe, you know, in, in a late night nightclub, you know, you're kind of you know drag it in there you know little little drunk you know maybe there's some gangsters around mm-hmm. or something smoke-filled room or whatever so it's an interesting atmosphere that he's painting here and um yeah it's 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 pretty cool um so i i, I like it and i don't know i don't know if the rest of his stuff sounds like this but he could if he's arranging all this stuff and not, and again i'm interested in like what percentage of this is actually arranged and written down versus what is improvised here uh you know it, it sounds very uh, or uh, orchestrated and very um, deliberate. I don't know if there's a ton of a uh, soloing going on in here, like off the off the cuff. But uh, overall, I liked it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear. I, I heard this album totally different than you guys did. Like, I mean, totally. To me, this is a very chaotic album. Um, I think even if I didn't know the the background of Mingus in terms of doing the bio here, I. I sort of said to myself, if I didn't know the bio, would I have heard it this way? And I came to the conclusion that yes, I would have. Because to me, this is a, um, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a darker and unpleasant, but, but it's, it's the sound of chaos. And it's, mm. it's a very, very emotional album. It's, it's a very interesting time in the world right now to hear this album. Because in some ways, I felt like this album reflected the chaotic nature of our times because there were moments of joy and 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 a harmony that sounded pleasant in here but um the 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 other parts while not the cacophonous sound of dolphy right or the sort of the blurts of you know even coltrane or pharaoh sanders you know that where you could see like okay now he's escalating it and now he's coming down and here's that rain set this this is kind of all over and i think that when you know that he looked at this as like almost describing well he didn't say i, I do think that this is almost his attempt to put his um his pain and his journey um into music um mm-hmm. I kept looking for something in a review to kind of describe how I was hearing this because I didn't know if I'd have the words for it myself. But, you know, besides the fact that it's an 11 piece band and there's a lot going on in terms of the musicianship that you can peel apart and especially a, a lot of sax and a lot of trumpet and they're playing sort of um, melancholy pieces mm-hmm. at times, like long, mm-hmm. long notes, you know, that, um, are somber but not like um not in the way that you would think a somber note would sound like it's more just stretched out so um i compare it to um like the idea of like almost like a dysthymic 
depression or this thymic viewpoint where it's, you know, you're not too low or you're not too high, but you're always a little bit off, right, mm -hmm. in terms of how it's being done. And so I then jump on to the theory of this album to some degree that this is sort of like um, a combination of Mingus's, you know, mental health challenges, which were very much there, and the pain that came from... Um, the racism and and the stuff that he encountered in terms of being able to be his own man and um one thing that really stood out about this is that this album had a lot of um the sounds of black music from the 40s and the 50s more so than even any of the jazz albums that we've covered so far which veered more into other stuff like this was firmly rooted in um well maybe pharaoh sanders might have gotten there as well but in a different way but um this was firmly rooted in the spirit of um black music in the 40s and 50s and it it sounds like a piece made by a black man in 1963 with the um the joys that come from that and the pain and the challenges that come from that as well so i think more than any album that we've done i i experienced this jazz album as a emotional experience um the second time i listened to it um it was an easier listen because i think i'd processed how I felt emotionally with it the first time. The first time I felt uneasy after listening to it, mm -hmm. um, uncomfortable, not in a bad way and not because of the music, but because of where it put me um, headspace wise. Um, and uh, the second time I listened to it, I came at it from a different angle and I got a different view of it. Um, but that, that's really my takeaway. This is, this is music to be listened to and felt and um, it's, there's no signature sound there's no um, hallmark musicianship wise that you say, oh, this is, you know, this yeah. is, you know, Coltrane sax or yeah. this is, can you imagine the piano on this? There's small virtuoso parts that come in. Um, another thing I don't know if you guys noticed, but what was fascinating about it is it just sort of ends. It doesn't lead to an end like sketches to Spain, you know, build up and, and, and go or even like Pharaoh Sanders where it's a journey on there. It just sort of like stops and it clearly sort of stops to, to symbolize for to me it felt like space continues but it continues after this album hmm. and um yeah so I, that was another thing i noticed both times it ends with basically just one sax you know blurt at the end right and then it just dies yeah. that the track ends um and there's been nothing like that in terms of the album we listened to so it was it was a fascinating listen i would lean to say i i i I liked it as a musical work. I don't know if I'd revisit it, but I think the reason I, I wouldn't revisit it is because um, it's just, you have to be in a certain headspace to find it. And it's a headspace that, um, especially right now, I don't know if I want to immerse myself in. And that's, that to me, that's a credit to the album because if it can get you feeling that way emotionally, um, it, it has resonance. So there you go. There's my take. Yeah, it sounds like the jazz albums for you especially john have been more definitely more impactful in terms of how you know t tapping into your emotions and getting you into certain head spaces you brought up the headspace oh thing before. way way more than anything else we've done i would say yeah. um the jazz albums i listen to primarily like you know you obviously because there's almost no lyricism so right. you're listening to them as musical pieces and so i think because of that it's i i have learned that i experience jazz in like a visceral state probably <laughs> interestingly enough probably the only thing i can compare it to is like how i listen to heavy metal but in a very different way like heavy mm. metal taps into sort of like a like an adrenaline slash 
you know, a, a level there, you know what I mean, where it levels up, whereas this, this can take me all over to different places. So yeah, I, I, think, I think you're 100% right, Josh. Yeah. I mean, that's the power of, of jazz, right? Or classical music and in in the instrumental music that we, that we listen to. I'll be interested to see if or hear if other um, people that listen to this album have you know, their reactions to it since we all had different, different takes on it. I, I think the word chaos is interesting, John, because I hear what you're saying. I don't know if I would describe it as that, though. I I, I found more not chaos. The pl- not the playing, and that's what I'm trying to get at. It's yeah. like, because I remember they said that a lot of the playing in this, you know, sounds like sighing, moaning, and groaning. And that's not necessarily chaotic in, I think, the way that you're thinking of. I'm talking more, it's chaos in terms of the, emo- to me, the emotional experience that I felt. And I think okay. one of the things that was very interesting was that um, I, I I felt that before reading anything about the reception of this album, because I don't want to bias myself. And it was interesting to hear how many other people um, mentioned similar stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm on to something here, I think, in terms of how this is hitting people. Well, and I definitely hear the, I mean, it's certainly emotional. And that's, it's it's kind of all over the place in that regard. And I, and I definitely hear that. Uh, yeah, I think jazz more so th- for me than anything else. I have, to, I think being in that right headspace is 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 certainly accurate, particularly since I don't listen to it a lot. Um, you know, as opposed to like a, because there's other music that I definitely, you know, like a more of a rock pop based kind of sound that. Um, I feel like, well, I don't really want to listen to that right now. I'm not in the mood, right? And that happens. But if you put something like that on that I was, maybe wasn't in the mood for, maybe like a harder rocking song or like more of a melancholy type of rock, rock song, I could still be okay with it. I think jazz would be harder for me to get over that hump if I wasn't in the mood. I think... I think jazz is a very cool genre to once you are in that place. And for me, I can probably get there a couple times, you know, a year. It doesn't happen a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, but when I do get there, I really do appreciate it. It's a very it's a very unique genre. It's it's a very difficult one for me to fully understand and to, to talk about because I just don't have a st- solid frame of reference going into it. But I also don't get to the point where I'm like, oh, this is terrible or this is boring or whatever. Um, I, I think certainly some of it, like I said you know Dolphy did I didn't I don't ever think I will listen to that again but the the many of these other albums I could certainly go back to here and there but it, it's not going to be a lot but when it's there it's it's kind of a cool thing it's 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 part of the variety right like we all get tired of listening at least I do I get tired of listening to some of the similar stuff and now I need to go over here and try this out and this is a nice little curveball to throw at yourself every now and then um and this was certainly you know, scratching that itch. This is a different, I don't, I've listened to a number of different types of jazz. This, this is, I haven't really heard anything like this before. So I was, I was surprised. Um, I did. And like I said, I did like it the more I listened to it, but I think that like you, like you, John, I think that first time you're like, Whoa, you're trying to process it because there's a lot of stuff going on here. Well, I think it's one of the interesting things is knowing about forties and fifties jazz. And then what jazz came to the sixties jazz really stands out that there's a lot more pain and like spiritual yearning in almost everything Mm -hmm. we've covered. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, for a lot of jazz's career, there was a lot of like fun and improvisation and good time. And, you know, whether it was because the writers writing about jazz in the sixties reflect did, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever do a decade that has more music about pain and hurt than the 60s does. And as we go on more and more, I realize that's a that's a consistent theme of 
music in the 1960s. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of it in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 00s and all the way up, but like that like deep sort of dysfunctional slash chaotic, almost like um, all-consuming slash self-destructive element of it, um, I just think that's a hallmark of the 60s and the jazz reflects that, you know what I mean? There's a tumultuousness to the era that Mm. comes through and, and, you know, I think... I checked myself on that because I'm like, all right, well, let me listen to some of the standards of the 40s and 50s a while back I did. And, and you can't help but notice they are way more upbeat and they are way more um, designed to be um, pick you up, right? Like I, there aren't really there's no albums. And may, maybe if you hear sketches of Spain one way or maybe if you hear my favorite things one way um, and if you accept that the Pharaoh Sanders album is a journey of, you know, um, you know, that ends with a positive outcome at at the end, you know what I mean? His spirituality, but probably that one to me was the most positive, but there's, there's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. And I think, uh, Matt, that's a little bit of the reason why I, you know, may not dig back into the stacks for, for these yeah. albums again, too, because you, you have to want to kind of peel back the skin there. Um, and it's a hard thing to do, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm just looking at this now on, on Wikipedia, the, the description of this, the type of genre, experimental big band music which I yep. thought was interesting because it does. I like because big band stuff is great, you know, to like, but like that upbeat stuff. But this is, yeah, like you could see that um, being the case here, the experimental nature of it. Um, yeah, it's like it went, went to an introspective phase in the 60s almost. I'd, I'd also be interested to hear what the next album sounds like because it's called Mingus, 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 Mingus. <laughs> so, what? Interesting. Okay, what's that? What's that about? John, you mentioned the... Um the notes from his psychotherapist in this how did Mm -hmm. how did those get incorporated in there wasn't really lyrics on this it's basically if you read the notes they're um they're written stream of conscience conscious they're Um, like the album notes the liner they're often described as somewhat incoherent and i would argue that there's some truth to that because they don't always give a um a linear idea of what's going on uh they they very clearly um talk about um, and I didn't read them until after I'd done the listens, but um, he kind of describes his beast within a little bit. And, you know, I, there's a part where he's talking about like alligators chasing him and stuff and uh, like like figuratively. Right. You know, mm-hmm. with different stuff. And, you know, he, he at one point also says you can basically throw away my entire musical output outside of one album. He doesn't mention what it is, but um and, and like just listening to this will encompass what I'm kind of trying to go for. So he he definitely said, you know, this is this is my my piece that most represents me. Hmm. Wow. OK. Mm-hmm. Yep. it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's um it's an interesting read the notes. I don't know how much you gain from it because um, it's not going to give you answers necessarily, but it does kind of. um. It's kind of like if somebody's working through their therapy, almost like um, existentially a little bit by writing down notes. That's um, uh, and yeah. um, Mingus's belief is that publishing the notes of his psychologist along with it because he's got his, you know, um, in the liner notes, and then the psych- the psychologist writes his very clinically, um, mm. and he he thought that the psychologist would do a better job of explaining why this piece of music was so important to him because he knew it would be received um because it doesn't sound like anything he did before right and it was you know it was kind of met with shock a little bit um some people 
identified it immediately as a work of genius, but didn't know what to make of it. Some people hated it and kind of never got over that. And some people liked how different it was, but I think he was looking at his, he was looking at his, um, um, his therapist to kind of like explain the, the importance of it to him on sort of a, a deeper level in, in, I guess, more, um, coherent language than sort of the stream of conscious that he used himself. Interesting. Yeah, he's got the uh, number two album in the 1950s. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's um. So yeah. So you should see. I mean, he he had hits before. Like yeah. I said, he he was considered to have you know a significant hit in the 50s, and um and, and Mingus Ah Um, another one they mentioned was before that as well. But yeah, interesting, interesting guy. Um, hard hard for me to tell you whether or not to listen. <laughs> I, I think if you're a, if you're a jazz aficionado, you already know this album. If you are um. Um, someone who is is leaning into looking to jazz, I think you also will enjoy this album. If you're a person for whom jazz does not come easy, or yeah, you're look, you know, I don't know if it's if jazz is not your inclination and you're not in an exploratory mood. I don't know if I would recommend this, but if you're in an exploratory mood, um, it's it's worth a listen. Um, and like I said, if you listen to jazz, there's no way this has <laughs> not passed through your your um purview at this point. So. Yeah. Yeah. We don't get, we only get the snapshots on the podcast of these artists. We don't get to see their whole careers for the jazz, you know, with the exception of the Beatles, we're not listening to like, yeah. And I apologize for not talking about the structure of this album or the musicianship because, um, there's plenty of it, but it it definitely was not meant, like I said, to have virtuoso soloing and stuff that stood out. I mean, there's, there's excellent piano work on this. There's excellent drumming on this. There's excellent sax on this, but they kind of, they all piece together and they, they have small, tiny breakout points. Um, and I, by that's by design. So um, I don't want yeah. you to think that we're minimizing the quality of the talent on here. The talent is undeniable, but um, it, it's, it's a hard album um, when you're trying to give this other context um, to explain that way. We would need much more time and, and we're not going to have it. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I think with that, we've come to the end of our episode. And, uh, you know, now that we are 29 episodes into, um, or 28, excuse me, 28 into it, we are down to the final five episode, guys. Can you believe that? F- only five more episodes left of the 60s, oh, um, wow. including Crazy. a final one, which will be two albums and a little bit of a wrap up of uh, the work that we've done. Uh, next week's going to be interesting. We're going to be revisiting three bands that we've covered before, which is going to be the norm in these uh, next couple um, mm-hmm. episodes, with the exception of one where I believe we will have mostly new albums, two new ones and then another Beatles or Dylan album for Matt. <laughs> but uh, next week, uh, Matt's going to do Highway 61 Revisited by Bob Dylan. Um, Josh is going to go back into the Velvet Underground. He's going to do the second of three Velvet Underground albums that we'll cover. This one's the self-titled one. Um, and when I say the self-titled one, I mean the later self-titled one, the third album, the third album. Uh, not the uh, Velvet Underground Nico. Velvet album, Underground Three. <laughs> Velvet <laughs> Underground Three, if we yeah. want to go that way, exactly. And then uh, I will cover Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix. Experience will be the second of three albums there as well that we'll cover from uh, the Experience. So, interesting episode coming up. Um, any final thoughts before we sign off, guys? 
I think Josh should, uh, if for the beginning mon- opening montage next week, or you, John, should uh, put in the final countdown by Europe to uh, signify <laughs> I, the final. I think one thing we should do is that Josh does the editing on the final thing and does the, the stuff at the beginning. I do the montage and some of the script work. I think, Matt, we're going to have to have you start writing and recording the opening, I think, one of these weeks. I think <laughs> yeah? that's going to be. Yeah, you want to so give me that responsibility? That. Just one week, do a rough draft of that and see how it sounds. Keep your ears open on the opening uh, to see which one sounds like it's gone away from me and into to Matt's creative wheelhouse. So for uh, Matt and Josh, this is John signing off on this week's Combing the Stacks. Look forward to seeing you next week. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks. But the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter at combingthe. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy the Mall, who performs our theme song, Coastin, as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track, Phonetic. Have a great night.